We are a people that follow after those things that make for peace, love, and unity. It is our desire that others' feet may walk in the same. We do deny and bear our testimony against all strife and wars and contention. This is the fundamental beliefs of conservative friends, what we are conserving. It is session number 15. It's been somewhat difficult, and it still is for me, to kind of decide on what to speak about. I'm finding it's difficult to organize what to do first and what to do next. We do have such a mixed group here of conservative friends and those who are not conservative friends but interested in listening to these things. What I decided was that just recently, this past week, in a small reading group, we have been reading a work called a brief synopsis of the principles and testimonies of the Religious Society of Friends with minutes of adoption from the yearly meetings of seven conservative meetings. This was written in 1912 and then adopted in 1912 and printed in 1913. Basically, it states what the basic principles, beliefs, testimonies of conservative friends were as they laid it down in this short 31-page small booklet, of which only 24 pages are really the short synopsis. The first seven pages are an approval by the seven yearly meetings that were conservative yearly meetings at that time in 1912. Today, there are only three of those meetings left. Ohio, Iowa, and North Carolina. The other four have had things happen to them. Kansas merged with Iowa in 1930, and New England united with the Gurneyite meeting in 1945. Canada reunited in 1955, and Western meeting was laid down in 1962. But what's very interesting is that I, what I see here are some of the very basic topics some of which I've already covered, but others that should be covered in the future. What I thought I'd do tonight is to just go through an outline I made of the works. There's no index or anything to this little work, but I made one uh, just this past 12th month, and I'm going to show you all that, and I'm going to go through it and just look at the various items that are presented there. As I said, it's unfortunate it's not broken into specific sections, but there is a kind of a progression of thought as it goes along. Henry, you said this was on the OYM website? Yes, this is on the OYM website. The outline I'm showing not is, is on my own computer <laughs> right now. Can everyone see that? Yes. yes? Okay. Yes. Those page numbers do not refer to what's on the Ohio Yearly Meeting website what was on the original pagination in that little booklet that Karen just showed everyone. So kind of ignore that. But I just want to go through this. This might take all of today, maybe another session, I don't know. But to give everyone an idea of the kinds of areas, topics, concerns that were prominent among conservative friends 100 years ago. And I think many of these are still very relevant today, most of them. So I'm just going to go through this and make a few comments. 
please chime in at any point if you have any questions or comments. Like I said, what I will do in the future is go over some of these in much more detail, but I might make a few comments here as to what's being said on the few pages that are, are given there. Henry? Yes. Um, you said that New England joined with the Gurneyite meeting. Right. Iowa, Iowa and Kansas merged. The Western was laid down in 1962. Right. In um, Canada, they reunited with, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that was also a Gurneyite meeting, but I'm not sure of that. I can mention something right away if I look at what they said here. It was approved in 1912. This was in Pickering, Ontario. I don't know. I don't have that information. What is the yearly meeting today in Canada? I believe they're basically much like liberal friends. That's my understanding. Um, that's correct, Henry. It's a liberal meeting, but the conservative meeting is still in all the minutes for the yearly meeting. It mentions at the beginning that this is approved by these three meetings that merged. So it's the historical reference to the conservatives are still there. But Yes, even here in California, Pacific Yearly Meeting got its start in San Jose, California, which is 30 miles south of where I live in San Mateo. And that was started by Joel Bean, who was basically a conservative friend. He didn't call himself that, but he was kicked out by his own meeting when it became much more Gurneyite evangelical. Things changed dramatically so that Pacific Yearly Meeting today is a very typical liberal meeting not like its original foundation there in San Jose, College Park meeting. What they said here was that these yearly meetings wanted to just in concise form express their beliefs in the doctrines of the gospel as professed, practiced, and promulgated by our early friends. And there's many references to writings of early friends in this short document. I'm not going to go through it all the various approvals and the meetings that were held by these various yearly meetings, but the meeting actually was held in Barnesville, Ohio, Ohio yearly meeting. And five of the seven yearly meetings attended that, but seven actually joined in eventually and said that they were in approval of what was said here. If you look at page eight here, very basic kinds of questions they had and, and things that they wanted to look at was God, God as a spirit, Jesus Christ as his only begotten son. I think people kind of don't always understand some of these meanings if you go back to the original Greek, like only begotten also could be just translated as unique. If you recall in the Bible, the word son is used for in a variety of places for different kinds of beings. Adam was called a son of God. In Daniel, angels too were called sons of God. So if this word in a ranking of closeness to God, a son is much higher than a prophet. And that's said in the very first verse of chapter 1 of Hebrews, that Jesus was a prophet, but he was greater than a prophet. He was a son, and also a unique son. Another important topic that friends understood was atonement through Christ and remission of sins. Atonement is a good old English word. It actually, the root of this word is the word one, O-N-E, at one-ment, at oneness with God, at oneness with Christ. That is the focus of religion. Our religion is to become united with God, to enter into that kingdom, that domain of God, that splendor, that glory of God. And that's the focus. And of course, with that is the understanding of remission of sins. We'll get into that at some point. Another interesting thing here, 
a topic would be that perhaps was a bit more important when this was written. They focus on the fact that Jesus suffered as a man, but not in his Godhead, that the divinity in Jesus did not suffer. Even today, I talk to people, even in this past year, non-Quakers, who somehow think that God died when Jesus died. That was clearly not an understanding of friends, and it never was. I mean, who's maintaining the universe if God dies? You have some interesting problems there. So that's a focus that for some reason was important when they wrote this. I should say one other thing about the atonement. It's through the work of the Holy Spirit in our heart, as they say here. It's that atoning sacrifice on Calvary. It's the understanding that Christ is the means for the remission of sins, the way that we can have our sins remitted, forgiven. Another area is that Christ, through his death, destroyed death. Christ Jesus, in terms of his resurrection, said that death wasn't the end of everything, that the appearances to the disciples and various people, for them, really proved that there's something beyond physical death. Jews at that time were of various opinions as to whether there was something beyond physical life. Even today among Jews, you have that same kind of variation of beliefs as to whether there's something more than just our material physical life. When they say Christ destroyed death, it was in this understanding of his resurrection and his appearances. Any comments, questions so far? I've got a comment, just that when I've gone to the yearly meeting website and tried to access this document, the only thing that comes up is the title page. Try scrolling down a lot. There's also like a little bar at the very bottom that should let you switch pages. Okay, maybe that's it. I forget what recently, and I know it's there, or it was there then. Okay, that did it. Which way? If I go to the bottom of the document, and I'm on an iPhone or an iPad, uh, it does give me page options that I can move through. Okay, great. I wonder if you would want to read the document it allowed to us, because it has both the, the doctrinal interest, but also historical interest. Well, I think we would spend hours going through this. There will be sections, I think, that I will bring up, actually. Maybe he's right. I should do some of that right now. Where was I? Christ destroyed death. Christ manifested as a man. This is an interesting word here, Christ. As perhaps most of you know, Christ is just a transliteration of the Greek word Christos, which means in Greek, the anointed one. And the anointed one in the transliteration from the Hebrew is Mashiach, Messiah in Hebrew, which means the anointed one, which means that this is the one that had something poured into him, poured onto him. And that was the one who was, had the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord poured into him. Of course, the understanding is with Christ Jesus that we're talking here about completely, fully, as Paul mentions in a couple of his epistles. It's kind of unfortunate that when you see the term Jesus Christ, that if we were being careful, we would put a comma after the word Christ, because, I'm sorry, after the word Jesus, Jesus, comma, Christ, because Christ is not a surname or a last name. It's a title. It's like saying king. Jesus the King, Jesus the Prince. And that's why you see sometimes Christ Jesus, the anointed Jesus. I think this is unfortunate in Spanish because I think Patti can tell us that 
In Spanish, they put the two words together at times, Jesucristo. Yes. Uh, as one word. That's incorrect, unfortunately. So sometimes, Henry, we say Jesus the Christ, Jesus el Cristo, but okay, many yes. times together, Jesucristo. Yes, that's, mm -hmm, that's more correct. Jesus el Cristo. Yes. There are a couple of things we also have to understand with this word Christ. It's a title, as, is, as we've just been using here. It also is a concept or the living Christ, the living spiritual entity that we call the anointed one. When we talk about Christ, the inward Christ or Christ within, that comes into play in many of friends' writings. It's not stated as such, but it's that understanding of the anointing within. In the first epistle of John, it talks about the anointing. That's the same as saying the Christ. It just takes away that human element from it and saying the anointing. It's that spiritual anointing. It's the spiritual one. God is neither human or non-human. He's be above and beyond those kinds of categorizations living spirit, that living Christ. And that's what I'm basically saying here on page 11, Christ, both Christ within and Christ without. Early friends were often castigated by non-Quakers saying that you don't believe in the Christ without, meaning on the outside, meaning the physical Christ, that you're only talking about the inward Christ. And I think they do this with good reason, that friends do focus on the inward Christ. Anyone can read the history about Christ Jesus, but never necessarily come to the same understanding of having Christ Jesus within us. Initially, only as a seed, perhaps, but it's something that, if followed, can lead us further on to greater and greater closeness to God if we obey that Christ within. Regeneration is a very popular word among friends conservative friends, earlier friends. And what this often, I think, is re referring to is being born again, being regenerated. And that's baptism in that sense. We'll talk more about that later on in this document. But you'll see that throughout the writings of friends, to be regenerated. We're talking about repentance, that true repentance, that true transformation of one's whole mindset, one's perspective, and understanding of God, one's neighbor, the world, the spirit. In page 12, it's, we're still talking about the same thing, this new birth of Christ formed within us. If you recall in Galatians chapter 4, Paul says he's like a woman in childbirth, having labor pains, trying to have Christ be formed in them. It's just, as I said, a seed, but he's trying hard to have them conscious of Christ within them. And that's that new birth. Ah, Trinitarian beliefs. Quakers have never been what's called a Trinitarian Christian church. Nowhere in the New Testament is the word Trinity ever used. The earliest instance of it ever being used was only in the middle of the second century by a Christian bishop. The vast majority of Christian denominations today consider themselves to be Trinitarians. And they follow that formulation of the Trinity that was promulgated and approved at the Council of Nicaea in the 4th century in the year 325. There were many dissenters to that belief at that time also. There were also a lot of political reasons why they did that. 
But my understanding is that friends did not want to be confined to that kind of doctrinal, dogmatic language that this kind of belief in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit meant. If you look at the creeds, the, the Nicene Creed, and how that is worded, there's only one passage in the whole New Testament that refers to something looking like a creedal statement of Trinity, and that's in first epistle of John, where it says, the three who bear record in heaven, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. But that appears to be an insertion into the New Testament. It occurs in no early Greek manuscript. It probably was something that was a marginal note that then got squeezed into later manuscripts. Any comments so far? I think that instead of saying that they didn't want to be confined to certain language or doctrine, I think it would be more appropriate to say that their theology was based upon their experience. And they didn't find that that formulation was in accord with their experience. Yes, I think what I'm trying to say is that it's kind of like an academic wording of something that is an experiential thing. It's not that they disagree with there being a Holy Spirit or Christ or God creator in no way. And of course, then there are all these arguments about the relationships that occurred subsequent to this formulation as to the Father, does the filioque, uh, the, the Spirit comes from the Father and the Son, or just the Father, and, and other kinds of arguments that really have nothing to do with where our focus should be on our relationship to God and how God is there within us to help us along our way and help us become kind of human beings we should be so that we can be much closer to him. I think it diminishes the vastness of the truth by trying to bring it down to a human formula. I know the early friends often argued about the fact that there were so many arguments among the various Christians in England the Anglicans, Presbyterians, the Congregationalists were the Independents, and others. They were just in heaps and piles over these arguments. They didn't mean anything in terms of getting people closer to God or changing them and making them become the kinds of human beings they are meant to be. Putting all the comments so far together, I was noticing, for very different reasons, reading in the several of the longer pieces in the first volume of the Doctrinals the other day, that, Fox, you never know whether it's going to be the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, just the Holy Spirit itself. He absolutely doesn't distinguish. I was trying to tell if there was some pattern to it, you know, like maybe it was rhetorical or which one fit there. But it's clear they're all the same to him as modes of expression. It's the power of the Spirit acting on him is, is the thing that matters. Yes. I could just see some seminary student being asked to try to define these differences as if they were there and needed to be looked at more carefully. But that's an academic kind of intellectual kind of pursuit. And you're gone off on the wrong road at this point. You've detoured off and gone after some red herring or something that won't get you anywhere. And yet that's the history of Christianity in terms of so much theology that has been argued about over century after century. I wonder if the right thing to infer mm. is that he didn't distinguish, or whether the right thing to infer is that he was experiencing God differently each time, and that's what he was writing, trying to write. 
that brings up an interesting comment that I wanted to make. I'm trying to say, how can I put this? You, you know that ancient Indian story about the five blind men who all touch an elephant? Mm -hmm. And they each are touching a different part of the elephant. One is touching the trunk, another one is touching the leg, and so forth. And they all come up with a different explanation of what they are touching and what it is. But it's the same animal, but what they're perceiving is different. They're only perceiving part of it. As soon as you start labeling things linguistically, you get into this problem. I may have mentioned this earlier in some session. There was an early 19th century Russian poet by the name of Lermontov. Actually, his ancestry was from Scotland, Lermont, Lermontov in Russian. And there was one line in one of his poems, this was when I was reading this in college, that really struck me. He said, a word once expressed is a lie. There's a difference between our having to say things using linguistic labels, which in some ways narrows down what may be there in actuality. So it's not quite true. If you look at how different languages vary so dramatically among themselves, like Navajo Indian is vastly different from English, which is very different from Sanskrit or Zulu. They're languages that are so dramatically different, Korean or Japanese, Chinese, and you just get huge differences in ways of thinking. You can translate something like the Bible into all of these languages, but how it gets translated from the original Greek and Hebrew may look strange at times because the concepts that your language has may not match exactly what was there in the original. So you're a little bit off. And it's important to really look at the spirit of God help you get beyond that literalist kind of labeling. That, I think, is very important. And that's something I personally learned many years ago, I think maybe just because of some of my linguistics background, to not be fooled by the superficial, the literal labeling of things. That's in my head all the time, actually. Okay, future spiritual life. Quakers do believe that life continues after life. Eternal life is something we should strive to enter into, have in this physical life, but it will continue afterwards. They're probably thinking at that time, 100 years ago, maybe of some various non-deist, non-Christian kinds of philosophies that were prominent. But they do refer to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul talks about there'll be a resurrection and of a spiritual body, our spiritual bodies. That also is an important point, too, I just mentioned here. I don't know all the details of the understanding of Jews today. But it would seem very essential that when you were talking about a resurrection, you were talking about a body. But Paul is making a distinction and being very clear in saying that we put on spiritual bodies. The natural body, the body that nature has given us, is left behind. And it's a spiritual body that continues. Okay, divine worship. Very famous verse, of course, having to do with the true worship. And true worshipers occurs in chapter 4 of the Gospel according to John where Jesus comments on the true worshipers to the Samaritan woman at the well, and that in the future, true worshipers would worship in spirit and in truth. In truth, I just want to remind people that the original Greek word means both truth and reality, in what is real or really. That's the true kind of worshiper that God really wants. One comment, too, the word worship comes from an older English word, worship. 
W-O-R-T-H, was shortened from worth-ship, giving back to God what he is worth. I think, friends, in page 14 here, actually someone like George Fox had mentioned too about music, that he felt it wasn't right for people to be asked to sing psalms and other pieces of music when they were not in the same spiritual state that the composers or singers of those pieces were originally. That is not right. The true melody is this melody in the heart that really matters. It's that spiritual music. Among early variations in terms of understanding of having communal music, singing that is, I'm not talking about instruments. In the first major history that Friends wrote, something by William Sewell, who was English and Dutch, his mother was Dutch, so he spoke both languages. He created this first profound diction, uh, history in Dutch. And in that Dutch version, he has an example of a song there, a Quaker song with music. But when he then translated it into English rendition, he left out that song. So there was a variation there. Of course, among friends today, if they feel led to sing in ministry, that is a true leading of the Spirit but we shouldn't be asking other people ever to sing with them. That would not be appropriate. Henry, as I was doing my transformative Quaker class on George Fox, one of the nuggets that has stuck with me is that at the time that he was roaming around England, people didn't have music in little boxes. They carried their guitars and their flutes everywhere, and they had music everywhere. So now we have it confined to little boxes or to our iPods or iPads or earbuds or whatever. And it's fairly private. In those days, it was not. Oh, okay. And I suspect, I don't know for a fact, but I have a feeling that part of this may have been a cultural thing to get people away from all that noise. <laughs> I mean, if you can imagine 600 people or 6,000 people singing all at the same time in different parts of the town, it would be pretty loud. Anyway, okay. just thought I would add that. Yeah, I'm not aware of that. That's interesting. I think there were a couple of people. Was Thomas Elwood one of them or Thomas Story commented that at some point, I forget what instrument he played. It might have been some kind of wooden string instrument. He mm -hmm. gave it up because he felt he couldn't do it any further. It wasn't appropriate. It took his mind away from focusing in on the true spiritual journey that he felt was the journey. Yeah. That I understand. I mean, I could see that too. It's very easy to go off in different, again, all these red herrings that attract us away from the, that straight and narrow path that is the true path of God. There may be nothing wrong with it at a moment or something, but again, it can become something you become more addicted to and then demand and feel you have to have it, and you go off on those unfortunate wrong paths. Okay, ministry of the gospel. I guess there's a lot that can be said about this. Ministry was understood to have to be fully inspired by the Lord. It's not some human creation because you've had all the studying and whatnot you had in a school of divinity in a seminary or whatever. That doesn't do it. And it, ministry was understood to be freely given. As it says in Matthew, you've really been given this ministry of God by others. You are also to freely give it to others. You are not to get paid for your ministry. 
That is why conservative friends and traditional friends have not had a paid ministry. I've seen that misunderstood, that anyone can give ministry. That's not true. You really have to be called to give ministry, whether it's the only one time in your life, or many times, or even further in doing public ministry. Of course, we have acknowledged ministers, recorded ministers, who appear to have that gift fairly consistently. But that gift, that charisma in Greek, charism, can be taken away. It doesn't necessarily belong there. Like in terms of apostolic succession in the church, there are, of course, various churches like the Catholic Church and others that feel you these gifts uh, of being a minister or whatever are hit down by the laying on of hands from one person to the next. Friends have not understood that. They've understood that Christ is the great minister of ministers, going down to page 17 there. And, and he is the one that will say who is to minister when and where. On page 16 here, our understanding of ministers is they are not members of a profession. They are only instruments or mediums, chosen vessels to be used by the Lord, maybe once, maybe often. That is up to the Lord. Any comments here? I've read several places that I think we're probably talking about late 18th and early 19th century now, that Quaker preachers develop a voice, a style. You knew when the Lord was speaking through them because it, it wasn't their voice. It's always seemed kind of strange to me. I knew a fellow when I lived in Philadelphia or outside Philadelphia who thought that he knew something about how that worked and he would perform what he thought was that style. He wasn't just a piece of historical explanation, but have you heard anything about that? Yes, yeah, so the 20th century, there were still ministers who did speak in that way. I only have a vague memory of one or two, and it sounded like it was kind of a drone. Maybe Nancy and some others can say a little bit more of that, of what they've experienced among some people like that, ministers who have spoken that way. I was told by one of the few ministers left in Philadelphia yearly meeting that it came about with quietism. And the way he described it was that there was a sing-song quality in the voice. Yeah. It was, I think, as the Holy Spirit gave them the words to speak, their voice would rise. And I don't know if any of you have experienced when you're led to speak in meeting, but it doesn't come all at once. You don't know what you're going to say before you stand up except maybe a couple words. And so their voice would rise when they were given what to say, when they knew what to say. And then it would sort of go lower and lower. And then I think as more words were given to them, then it would go up again. And so it sounded sort of sing-songy for that reason, but it was mm -hmm. different, but it was... It wasn't something that they they did, they even knew they were doing, I don't think. Hmm. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks. Okay, where are we here? Oh, yes, 18. The subtle exaltation of an intellectual standard for the ministry. That you have to have some smarts, you have to go to a seminary, school of divinity, to become a minister. And, of course, right from the beginning, early friends, Fox and others said, no, this is not the case. 
but it seems like in the 19th and 20th centuries, there was this strong feeling about the need for ministers to have that kind of academic education. And conservative friends have made a consistent statement about that is not the case. It's again, Christ was the minister of ministers. He is the one that can say someone can minister or not minister. Of course, I do want to say so often, unfortunately, there are people who think they are ministering when they are not. And then, of course, too, there are those who are, have a gift, but they're just beginning. They're babes, essentially, in Christ, and they are learning to minister, and they need to be understood and, and given some understanding for that. So I'm just saying there are variations here as to how this is understood. I think I'd add that it's neither dependent on intellectual capacity or neither is it anti-intellectual. Yes. If you have a very good intellect, you need to use it. God gave it to you for that reason, for some reason, so that you need to use it. If you don't, but you have the spirit, if that same spirit is in other people who are listening, they should clearly derive something powerful from that. It doesn't matter what that instrument is, that person is, if what they're really saying is something from God. There is the danger, though, of rationalizing well and trying to explain what you say when that's not coming from the Lord, but from your intellect. So there needs to be care taken. Mm -hmm. All right, one more on page 19. I think we'll stop with this one. The Spirit alone can open the mysteries contained in the Holy Scriptures. It's not up to us to figure out what's being said there. We pray that the translations are as good as they can be and that the Spirit was in the translators who translated the Hebrew and the Greek into whatever languages they are translating them into. And then we get the surface level of those words and look for the true, deeper, spiritual understanding that is in those words. Of course, at times things are to be taken quite literally, and it's that process of spiritual discernment that needs to be taken. It says, again here, the Spirit alone can open the mysteries, the secrets that are contained in the Holy Scriptures. I think I'm going to stop there because the next few things have to do with baptism and Eucharist and you know, a little bit more, so we'll do that next week. These are all the basic topics, I think, that these friends of a hundred years ago felt were at the very basis of conservative friends' beliefs, and I think we can still say that today. As I had mentioned last week, I do hope to start a reading group sometime in the next couple of months and read William Schuwen's The True Christian's Faith and Experience, which goes into much more detail than this short 31-page synopsis here that I hope will explain much more of what being said here in a you know, few words. I myself too will go on and we'll talk more about these in detail if we have a session on baptism. I'm just kind of pointing out what we have here as to what they saw as some of the basic beliefs, principles, testimonies that need to be looked at. And any further comments? So we'll finish this next week. As I said, some of these topics here are probably very short topics, and so some of our future sessions might be very short ones. But others, like baptism, take a while, <laughs> or the Eucharist. I really, again, want to emphasize that the two basic understandings, 
the two basic themes of Jesus's ministry were repentance and the kingdom of God, eternal life, and leads to the other. I just wish if that were the only two things we spoke about, that would be sufficient. It's funny to say that I, I think that in, in reading this, which is written like, what, 250 years after the Quaker movement began, I get a sense that it has to do more with a reflection upon the ideas that the early friends had, and somehow it seems to not carry the kind of whole cloth quality that you find in early friends' writings. It seems like it's sort of like the game telephone where you whisper a message and then the next person who's heard the message whispers it to the following person. And it just seems to have that quality of being ideas that have been rehashed rather than a more immediate quality in the, the original writings. Let me make something here that I've not said at all. A lot of this is in response to what had happened to Quakers in the 19th century and as also what was happening in their world of America at that time, a hundred and some odd years ago, in the very first couple of paragraphs, which I probably should read because I think that says it. Although there are various works of recognized ability and standard repute setting forth the principles and testimonies of the Religious Society of Friends, many of them most valuable in the literature of the society, Yet in view of the fact that in this era of unrest and change, when in many religious denominations such changes have taken place as have materially altered their belief within the short span of a generation, it might be well for us to reaffirm our faith in the doctrines of the gospel as professed and promulgated by our early friends. This seems to us the more needful because the changes above mentioned are not by any means confined to other religious bodies, but have swept over the Society of Friends as well, until in many places the free gospel ministry, the deep spirituality, the solemn waiting worship of the early friends are things of the past. And it goes on in the same line that in many ways they are referring directly to what's happening in their generation. I didn't mention that, but I think you have to understand that too. And even reading this today, you'll see that there are things that, you know, you can understand that they were 100 years ago. There's a criticism of higher criticism. And I can understand that criticism of this academic higher criticism because it's too academic. It's too intellectual. It has nothing to do with the whole need to experience Christ within you. To have that spiritual joy, that spiritual happiness that is above all happinesses. It's the peace that surpasseth every human peace. I so. have a story about Arthur Burke, who was a Quaker minister. And probably about 30 years ago, when I had just started working with him and others at New Foundation Fellowship, we were having a meal together, and I asked him when the Society of Friends had started to decline. Was it in the 60s when all the peace activists came in, or did it happen much before that, maybe in the 19th century when there were so many divisions? And he immediately answered me, 1692. <laughs> <laughs> that late. 1666. That's closer, I think. 
I mean, we should be finishing here, but look at early Christianity. Already, you have these heretics that are mentioned in the first epistle of John and also in Revelation and elsewhere. Recently, in a reading group, uh, read the Didache, the teaching of the Twelve Apostles, which is a very early first century Christian writing, probably even earlier than some of the writings in the New Testament. And there's a warning there against false prophets and false teachers. You need to discern between a true minister and a false minister, a, a true prophet and a false prophet, meaning a minister actually, and a true teacher and a false teacher. And I took those words very serious. I just wanted to say, because I think one of the problems historically of Quakers is that they've had a hard time teaching these kinds of doctrines from one generation to the next. So that worldly influences, I, I just know so many liberal, any kind of Quakers, they're more likely to read anything but their own Quaker literature. Some other Christian doctrine, some other Christian religion, Catholic or Lutheran or Episcopalian, then go back and see what they actually believe. It's amazing. I don't understand that, but it has to do with the extreme libertarianism of our society and the extreme individualism of our society that's caused all the breakups in the 19th century and all the thousands of different Christian denominations we have in this country and elsewhere. It's something we need to be aware of. There's a lot to talk about this, but I can understand this is the old ego, the old pride causing all this. Anyway. Thank you all, and uh, we'll finish with this next week and go on from there, okay? Thanks, Henry. Bye, Henry. Thanks. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you, Henry. We are a people that follow after those things that make for peace, love, and unity. It is our desire that others' feet may walk in the same. We do deny and bear our testimony against all strife and wars and contention. This podcast has been a production of Ohio Yearly Meeting. It was hosted by Henry Jason and edited by Kim Palmer. The words to our music are from Margaret Fowle's letter to the King on Persecution in 1660. The music was composed and sung by Paulette Meyer. Paulette's work can be found at paulettemeyer.com.